I feel like as a musician, you have a certain responsibility to bring people together. And it's a big platform. You're standing mm -hmm. on stage and you're saying, hey, look at me, listen to me. Hello and welcome to Where the Living Room Used to Be, a podcast about Rhode Island's music scene. Hey everyone, it's James. For this episode, I got to sit down with Gregory Rourke, a very accomplished musician and industry professional. Gregory began his career working alongside Randy Heen at The Living Room and is now a co-owner of The Parlor in Providence. We talked about why he got into music, plus he'll tell some stories from the clubs he's worked at and what's going on with the reggae scene here in Rhode Island. If you've been enjoying these episodes, please leave a positive rating. And as always, follow along on Facebook and Instagram at Living Room UTB for show flyers, live pictures, and more. Uh, music was a big part of my family. My grandmother played piano. There was many a nights I would, she would have some of her. She uh, was a receptionist at my middle school, so a lot of my teachers would come over and play piano. And okay. Do like sing alongs, and my aunts and uncles all played, and my uncle John. He was a big influence, played in a bluegrass band. He was the washtub bass player. Um, Aunt Maggie was a, a great singer, and she had a couple kind of coffee shop kind of kind of bands that she was involved in, so she would do performances every now and then, Friday mm -hmm. nights in our living room and stuff like that. So it's kind of always instruments around and musicians. Yeah. What was the first instrument that you picked up? I wanted to play guitar. Uh, and I was not allowed to. <laughs> oh, really? Why? <laughs> um, various reasons, I think. Uh, so I, I started playing, um, started playing piano very early, but I didn't really gravitate towards that too much. And I started playing trumpet at around age 10. And I played that all the way up until 16 when I finally got a guitar. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And were you, uh, taking lessons? Yeah, I mean, it was all through. I mean, there was very good music programs yeah. in school back then. Um, so I had marching band, I had band, I had trumpet, uh, quartet, chorus. That was all part of like your general curriculum. If yeah. You chose to do music stuff in school. Yeah. So yeah. I had very good musical programs at, uh, in Massachusetts. Cool. I made it very accessible. Yeah. You can rent instruments and all that kind of stuff. So I played French horn briefly. <laughs> French horn, really? Yeah, for about a year. <laughs> All right. Yeah, towards the end of my trumpet, uh, my trumpet years. Yeah. yeah. Did you enjoy playing horns? I did. You know, it's, I mean, it's kind of in a lot of the same register at the guitar thing, so reading transferred. But I did. I always enjoyed, like, you know, Miles Davis and Chuck Mangione, I think, was the first trumpet player I became aware of. Okay. So, yeah, I enjoyed that experience a lot. Cool. Yeah. But you said when you were 16, you picked up a guitar. I demanded to get a guitar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I finally was, uh, old. My, I have a kind of a big, um, my mother's side of the family is a big Irish family. So they all kind of chipped in one Christmas and I went to Mr. Music in Boston and, and bought my first guitar. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. What kind of guitar was it? Uh, it was a Flying V. It was a Hondo, like Randy Rhodes inspired model, I believe. Yeah. 
That was yeah. the first. Was that the type of music you were listening to? Yeah, I listened, you know, at that point. I mean, I was into like early hip hop and Jimi Hendrix and ACDC oh, yeah, yeah. and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Early Clash, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. What was the first band that you played in? I believe my first band was Conquest, which was just me playing guitar and singing, and my friend Sean Moore, who was my next door neighbor at the time, played drums. Yeah. My first official band where we actually like played gigs was uh, Steep Illusion with uh, my friend Gabe Noonan and Robbie Champagne, and I think Anthony Fredarelli, who plays in 21 Guns now, was, uh, was the drummer in that band. Okay. Yeah. What kind of music was that? That was just pretty much heavy metal. Where were you playing at the time? Our first gig ever was at the Last Call Saloon. Uh, we played the ASC-20 when it was on um, uh, above, well, where Alchemy is now. It used to be the ASC-20. Mm-hmm. And we'd do random house parties. And, you know, there wasn't really a ton of places for underage bands to play at that time. Oh, okay. We played at Last Call Saloon. It was like a Tuesday night or something like that. Yeah. It was more primarily like a blues bar um, at that time. And ASG 20 was more of a kind of a performance space. Mm-hmm. But a lot which of is, it. I mean, still is now, but um, I feel like music wasn't, it was more, it was not their primary focus, I don't think, at that time. Yeah, okay. Yeah. We did a little work. I think we played at Baby at one time. It was a different time in Providence back then. You know. um, it you know, went what years? Uh, that had to be like 87 to like, uh, left the province in 92, so yeah, 87 to 92 around that. Yeah. Like, what pretty was much just had Babyhead, you had, uh, The Last Call Saloon, you had The Living Room, I guess Mama's Metro Cafe did some bands at times back then. Um, I think there was a club called The Raven, right off of Washington Street. Which again, it's, it's a long time ago. So <laughs> could be subject to uh, to change. But, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it was you know, I mean, there was a, a tight knit group of musicians at that time. There was a lot of different styles being played. I feel like and explored, and uh, you know, those bands grew into like Kilgore Smudge and mm-hmm. Sasquatch and um, you know, all Shed, Big oh, yeah, Show. Yeah. A lot of those bands. We're starting to originate around, you know, we were all like 17, 18, kind of, once we hit into our 20s, the living room reopened. That's when I came back from college and started working there, but then all, you know, all those bands kind of splurged with baby head, the living room, and those kind of rooms. Yeah. You know, there was a strong scene at that point. There was a lot of young 20-something kids playing music and exploring different sounds and stuff like that. It was pretty fun. How would you describe the scene then? I first went to the living room when I was 16, and they had like a, I think the first time I went there was like Max Creek. Like I had never even stepped into a club before. I think the second time was more like a heavy metal, like the local heavy metal night. Uh, and people, kids just went out to go out. You know, I just remember like if there was music playing of a certain style and you enjoyed it, even if it, if it wasn't really your style, you'd go check it out. Just yeah, okay, just supported live music. Yeah, it was just more like something to do, you know. Mm-hmm. I think clubs played a bigger role back then. I feel like now, you know, it's a little different. People go to the shows that they want to see. You know. Everybody's older, too, so different responsibilities. But mm-hmm. um, 
Yeah, I feel like there was just people just went. You know, the locals, the local shows were pretty packed back then. From what I remember. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The church house had reggae going on. I used to be able to go in there and check out reggae bands. And that had a big impact on the Red Brick church house thing. Like in what way? Like it just exposed you? Yeah, to just exposed. I mean, I had known about reggae through like Bad Brains and stuff like that, but I didn't really understand the culture of it. And you know, being able to go to the church house and you know see Wilson Blue, who I actually ended up performing with in future years, and. Mm-hmm. Members of Inner Circle and Scottaways and all these different cats that went through there at that time. It was pretty epic. Yeah. And yeah. where was that? That was uh, on Washington's, I mean, on uh, Fountain Street, which I believe is the Dean Hotel now. Oh, okay. It's been a couple of different things over the years, but that's yeah. the area. So you're mentioning that you went to college and then came back? like. Yeah, I went to college in Boston, so it wasn't really that, that much of a jump. I did really soak up Boston a lot. I really enjoyed going out, go to the Rat Sculler and Bill's Bar. Mm-hmm. On Lansdowne Street to access the Avalon. That was kind of what was going on back then. We played a lot of, uh, my band at that time played a lot of fraternity kind of stuff. So all the growing experience at that point. I was like, that exposed me to a lot of music like around the world. Like, mm-hmm. you know, it's a very international school. So what school did you go to? I went to Berkeley. Okay. College of music, yeah, so. What did you study there? I studied performance, studied guitar. Okay. Um, so, right after school, did you come? Right I came back to Providence and. Um, did you start playing in another band? Uh, I started playing with Baba Tunde and the Roots International Crew. What kind started, of music was that? That was reggae. I uh, started playing with a producer, bass player named Martin Robbins, who had a big impact on my musical career, Doc X. He had a huge impact on my playing and my career. He taught me a lot about playing reggae and hip hop, and mm-hmm. which led me to get bigger and bigger gigs. I played with uh, Dub Squad for a long time, which led me to play with Soul Shot. I got to back up like Alton Ellis and uh, Ernie Smith. Then I started working with Dub Squad out of Boston and backing up, you know, Everton Blender, Queen Omega, Carrie Kill. Just from that kind of blossomed into. Me playing on a bigger, you know, bigger stages. Yeah, yeah, okay. More of an international scene. Yeah. Which was huge, you know. I'm very yeah. thankful for all those people and all those experiences. Mm-hmm. Can you talk more about the reggae scene in, in Rhode Island? I feel like the reggae scene in Rhode Island is completely underrated and uh, largely undersupported. I mean, you know, we have the Ocean Mist uh, that supports a lot of the touring bands. Uh, Lupo's that used to bring in a lot of acts. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, I mean, I guess when we had Stepping Stone, the Stepping Stone Ranch in Esquihigue, they used to do oh, big yeah. reggae festivals over there. You know, there's always, like, the festivals and limited club dates were where you could go check out reggae. So I feel like there's very amazing musicians in Providence. And, like, you know, Lloyd Nibb, the drummer from the Scottalites, who pretty much invented the style, was living in Providence for, oh, really? for a while, yeah, back in Wilson Blue. Uh, Ken Stewart, who plays in the Scottalites currently and plays at Soul Shot as well. He, he's kind of a local local guy. I mean, more in Massachusetts, but he spent a lot of time in Rhode Island. Um, you know, there's just the local musicians in Rhode Island. There's some really incredible players, you know. Like who else is part of that scene? Uh, Cameron Greenlee, Gene Job, 
O.C. Bathway, Chris Jackson, Frankie Moniz, Grayson Farmer, uh, Ray Gennari, does a lot of production and played, you know, on the Ravers for a long time and Indestructibles mm-hmm. as, you know, just as the agents, uh, kind of picked up the ska scene when that whole thing was going down. I feel like there's just a lot of people that play ska and reggae. Yeah. And knowing when, and I'm just always surprised at the, that the demand for it isn't higher. Like the church house, when I discovered the church house, it was like lines out the door on a Thursday night. It was a big, you know, kind of local reggae night. And it'd be like a line out the door to get into that club. You know? Yeah. Okay. I've yet, I haven't seen since that time that much interest in reggae music and stuff like that. Providence is, in my opinion, is, you know, rock and roll. Rock and roll has a really strong hold on this place, which isn't a bad thing too. There's amazing musicians of those genres too, you know. Yeah. Um, I just think that reggae gets a little overlooked. I mean, you know, I feel like people, some people may be intimidated by it because they feel like it's like, just for like Rasta or it's just like this island music or you know I think there's a lot of mystique still surrounded by it you know some of the movement with the younger hippie crowds too are uh, bringing bringing reggae up more to light too you know with the crossover kind of stuff so okay but I still feel like there's a lot of artists that get overlooked you know yeah um, I've been doing it for like a long long there's a producer, Andrew Moon Bain. He's a guitar player, producer. Uh, plays a lot of Blue City. I mean, he's the head of Blue City. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, he's had, you know, tracks on, on major albums. He works a lot with Midnight, who's a big international star. Really, he did the, some rhythms on the Snoop Lion album when Snoop Dogg decided to do it. Oh, yeah. The reggae yeah. album. Yeah, he's like a local, you know, local guy. Mm-hmm. So there's, a lot of cats around here, you know, if you go to see them, you're seeing people that have toured and mm-hmm. you know, played internationally, you know, right in your backyard. Yeah. <laughs> so where can people check out reggae music? I mean, um, that's that's the funny thing. It's a, so I I do my thing at uh, uh my band Natural Element, uh, Becky Bass, um, Matty Odebashian, Elsie Bathway, and Jim Job. We bring in other singers. We worked with uh, Warrior King, Yami Bolo. Stephanie Hava and Peter Lloyd. We do a thing every Monday night that with uh, Polly Danger from Upsetter Sound at the parlor over at Alchemy. They do an island Saturdays, which is more of a dance hall thing. Um, okay. And then, you know, various shows that kind of pop up throughout. Dusk does a little bit of reggae, too. Um, Rick does a good job at keeping it, you know, mixed up over there. Yep. Um, so I feel like, you know, there are places to... Check it out. Uh, you know, there could be more. <laughs> yeah, okay. Because there always been a place to see reggae. No. They're kind of like dipped and it's I think it's dipped. You know, I, I feel like the Ocean Mist is the one place that's steadily, you know, kept kept the reggae vibe alive. You know, in my opinion. And the Island Saturdays used to be over a, a skew before it was a skew. It was, a, was it the Squirrel? The, the Fat uh, Squirrel. The Fat yeah. Squirrel, yeah. So Island Saturdays used to do their thing at Fat Squirrel. But it's, it's always kind of been more of a DJ thing. I mean, there was Maximum Monday at Jerky's. Mm-hmm. It was always a access to reggae through through DJ culture. But I think through live band culture, you know, you had the festivals, you had the Ocean Mist, and then various other things that used to pop up. Yeah. 
you know, that, and another thing is, there's just not a ton of bands in the style. You know, when I was coming up, it was like Mastai, Mystic Jammers, Sex Magic, Baba Tunde, Dub Squad. I mean, there were, there were bands to they choose were all from. Doing it, yeah. yeah, so. And who's active right now? Um, Mystic Jammers, um, Professor Roots is, is doing very well. Uh, Soul Shot still doing their thing. I'm out of Boston. Nia Rockers, and, you know, they sub in and our Providence guys here and there. And there's, there's a guy out of Boston, Dan, who does this reggae takeover thing, and he's, he's been building a bridge between Providence and Boston musicians to kind of okay. bring stuff back and forth. So, I think there's definitely people trying, you know, keep it, keep the vibe alive. So. Yeah. yeah. I think it's a good music. It crosses over well to other styles. Reggae embraces a lot of other styles. There's like rock and roll and reggae, there's like hip hop. Mm-hmm. The time I've spent in Jamaica, Jamaicans really love country music as well. So yeah, toots embraces some of that. You know, so I feel like it is like really a world music. It, it really draws from a lot of different styles. You know? mm-hmm. How did uh, Natural Element come together? It actually, we had a band called Four Corner back in the day. We used to play a lot of the, the old uh, black rap. Okay. Um, and various other festivals and such. Um, and that was Gene Job, the bass player, Matty Odebastian, Frankie Rinks, Carlo Montero was the bass, was the drummer, who actually is the owner of, one of the owners of Ten Rocks, you know. So we had that band. We, you know, made a little noise with that band. We did a Cape Verdean tour. We played at the Gambordo Music Festival, which was pretty special. That oh, yeah. was my first, like, international jump, uh, which is, you know, makes you, gives you a lot of, validity as being a musician like hey I didn't make such a bad decision yeah miles away on a huge stage so yeah that was a really huge impact on my life as well and mm-hmm. the start of a good relationship between me and Jim who's inspired me a lot as a musician Natural Element came together. We started, you know, I just had an idea to do a, a dub thing, just sound class between a DJ and a live band. Because, like I said earlier, I always think that the live bands and the DJs, you know, it's always like a separate thing. So I was like, let's bring this together. Yeah. Maybe we can bring both the crowds together. Because, you know, there's people that just want to go out and listen to records and dance. And, mm-hmm. you know, and there's people that really are inspired by the live music. So, um, I just thought that would be a good combination. We started that at, uh, I guess what it was called before it went closed was Victor Spoils. It was like an underground club in downtown. I don't know what it was before that. We started there, and then the parlor opened, and we moved it to the parlor, and it kind of grew. Gene got involved, and then OC got involved. And yeah. That and then Becky, she just showed up one night and asked to sit in, and she became a very welcome addition to the band, you know. Mm-hmm. She's like an amazing talent. Yeah. Has it always been on Mondays? The yeah, we've yeah. kept we've kept that on Mondays. It's actually been a very good jumping off point for the band to kind of explore other opportunities too. And keeping it on Monday, we're also busy. Everybody's professional musician for the most part. So yeah. um 
it's kind of hard to book. The band's hard to book, you know, just to get everybody's schedule in line and everybody in the same place. So the Monday seemed most logical. And actually, the Monday night at Jerky's, I forget what the exact running time was at. I think it was like 13 years or something. I had come to an end just around that time when we started doing Foundation Mondays at the Parlor. So I was oh, like, okay. you know, I was like, well, it was just very successful. Yeah. Monday night that closed, you know, let's pay it respect and try to keep the tradition going. Mm-hmm. You know, so, and luckily the reggae community has, uh, supported it and kept it thriving. I think we're going into seven years now. Cool. Yeah. So I'm pretty proud of that. As people of all walks of life, all different backgrounds can kind of come in and just enjoy it. So, yeah, yeah. It's a very diverse crowd on that night, which I enjoy. I mean, that's what, that's what music is about. Yeah. Is yeah. that not? A typical crowd for a uh, reggae show, or no? I feel I feel like reggae opens itself, you know, to all different walks of life. I mean, I, I worked in the living room for years. It's definitely, you know, hardcore shows had its usual spec- suspects and then maybe some new faces, but it was you know all like that kind of music culture that scene. Let's say mm-hmm. metal shows can subscribe to that same thing. You know, even hip hop shows can be very, you know, certain. It's a music culture, you know, it's what you're into. It's the people that you surround yourself with, you enjoy the same thing, you enjoy the intensity level of whatever that music is, and it speaks to you and your lifestyle, and you're going to obviously promote it, you know. Mm-hmm. But I think as, I feel like reggae kind of open, you know, it, it, you can see at festivals anywhere from like young kids to very old people, I feel like people really feel excluded, you know. Mm-hmm. Like once again, just get rid of that guy's like, oh, this is just this kind of music. I feel like that with every record, with every culture, you know. Like, I used to go to punk shows all the time. I wasn't your traditional punk rocker, but I still loved the music and the, mm-hmm. and the intensity and the message. And, you know, I could align with some of that. Same thing with metal. I went to a lot of metal shows all through the late 80s and early, early 90s. You know? mm-hmm. I wasn't probably your traditional metal <laughs> fan. So, yeah. Um, you know, that's me. I, I, I encourage more people to get outside of their comfort zone or their, what they listen to all the time and explore other stuff. You know? Yeah. A lot of amazing artists. Talent doesn't really have a genre, I don't think, you know. That's cool. Yeah. You, you just mentioned the living room. What was the first club that you worked at? Was it, was it the first there? club I worked at was the living room. I got a, a job there. In, I think I started working there in 92. Okay. Around October or November. Before, I mean, I had, the location hadn't even opened. Um, a friend of mine had played baseball for Randy. Mm-hmm. And um, his father had talked, you know, Randy was talking about opening the new club. And his father had talked um, to Randy about sons looking for a job coming out of college. So that friend, Robbie Champagne, invited me and my other friend, Gabe, to come in and meet Randy and... Uh, I remember going to breakfast with Randy to meet him to say, you know, I'd like to work for you someday. And yeah. He's like, oh, you want to take a ride? And we went to the architect and we picked up the plans for the building. And Randy, Rob, and I were the first three people to walk into the Rathbone location. He got the keys that day and we walked in together. Wow. Yeah. What was it like when you first walked in there? It was the old, uh, I don't know how to feel the name, the Governor Dyer House or something like that. Mm-hmm. So it was like, it looked like Frank Sinatra would have performed there. It was like <laughs> an old restaurant there. I guess it was a big function hall. They did a lot of, um, weddings and, and banquets and stuff like that. So it was like, you know, bars set up with the 
clouds painted on the ceiling and just really kind of old fashioned fancy. You know, okay. you think of like a, a you know, a restaurant in the sixties and seventies and you know, there's like mirrored music staff on the wall and floral wallpaper and yeah. ceiling fans everywhere. It looked a lot different than, than it did towards the end. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> How much planning was done prior to that? Like the did he have an idea of how it was going to be set up, or was it just like he walked in there and I was like, all right, we're going to take some of these flower wallpaper off? Or? Yeah, I mean, we pretty much went in there after that point and demoed everything, built the stage, and moved some stuff around and opened the door. It was pretty much uh, get it done. You know? Yeah, it was a pretty quick turnaround. Yeah, I mean, we did a lot of work. Yeah. Uh, we built a couple of bars, built the stage. There's a big kitchen in there. We had to take that all apart. Yeah. Squish it down a little bit. Um, it was quite a laborsome, uh, journey to get to the doors opening, but mm-hmm. it had a workable fireplace when we first started. Oh, really? The demo and that and stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> I think we, we built the fire, maybe the first week or something. And then the fire department showed up and told us we couldn't have fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but that's where I met, you know, Mike Aruda. Actually, ended up teaching me how to do sound and mm-hmm. to open the doors to me working at a lot of other clubs. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so what was your job with Randy? My original job with Randy was door guy, which I did for some time. And then once I got tired of that, I started, I asked to do sound, and that's when I started training with Mike. And uh, the deal was I could train, I couldn't get paid until I learned I could run a show by myself. So I really jumped into that, studied that pretty hard. Um, okay. So then I would do door and sound. I started doing sound quite often, and then uh, after a while, once the baseball, the Little League started kicking in, they let me bartend a lot more, and then I eventually became a manager, and then Aaron, and I, Aaron Janig and I, after Randy had passed, became managers, and which eventually led us to having a dream of obtaining our own place. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, I did, I mean, I did pretty much everything now, I did, you know. Restoration and repair, the plumbing, all <laughs> self-taught. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I used to call it guerrilla repair, you know. Randy had an interesting way of, I'd have to pull nails out of, out of one wall to secure another wall sometimes. <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, yeah, it was interesting, to say the least. But I learned, I learned a lot. And the bottom, I had so much fun. Like, you know, I think that, that's an era of, of nightclub life that will never, you know, you had the spots like the Rat in Boston, the Living Room, uh, Rocket, Babyhead, it's like, kind of, it's a different era of, of nightclubs, you know, and I don't I don't think we'll ever, those kind of nightclubs will be mm-hmm. seen again. That was an era of time where, as a band, you really had to, there was no social media, mm-hmm. so you, you were the social media, you had to go, you know, pound the tour, yep. sleep in the van, do the nightclubs, Develop your following. You know. mm-hmm. I feel like it's just a different time, different, mm-hmm. era, different era, obviously. You know, and I, I, they weren't, it wasn't so regulated too at that time. You know, so. What do you mean? Uh, I mean, I think it's a good thing the regulations they have. You know, pretty much everybody for themselves at that. You got a building, you put a stage in it. So oh, okay. Way. There wasn't so much craft beer. There wasn't all this, you know. It's like pretty low expectations as walking in to go to a to see a live music show. You got a choice of like two, two or three beers. And yep. 
whatever. And there was a lot, all those clubs are all ages, mm-hmm. which isn't so accessible now. Most places are 21 plus, or if they are all ages, the shows are very early or what. Yeah. It's geared for a certain kind of crowd. Mm-hmm. I think I saw Jimmy Cliff at the living room in like 1987 or 88, and I was probably 17 or 18, and there was a gamut of ages in that room. You know? mm-hmm. It was from kids to adults, and mm-hmm. I don't know, you know, it's not so much that culture anymore. And ticket prices are just way, way more expensive than they used to be. Yeah. I didn't even really care about what I just saw like, oh music's playing, I'm gonna go go there, I have five bucks and mm-hmm. I have two dollars, get a soda. Like Yeah. Bang, I'm in, you know. Yeah. I'm like you're exposed to all this stuff. Yeah. But yeah, what was it like working with Randy? It was amazing. I mean, you know, I I uh I had grown up without a father, so I had my uncles were like largely like my father figure in my life, but he was the first, you know, non-family person to kind of take me under his wing. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, he was like that with, with many people, with his Little League background, and just running an all-ages club, he's always just had positive, you know. Mm-hmm. It could be, you know, there could be like tons of things going around in the club, and he would just have a, a little joke or a little one-liner, and could totally turn the situation around on a dime. Yeah, yeah. He genuinely cared about musicians. And he, he, uh, my favorite, one of my favorite stories is at the, the bubble living room. That's the first living room I went to, Promenade Street there. That's the one that closed before the Rathbone Street location. Um, his mom used to make, do home, home cooked meals for all the musicians. Oh, really? Yeah. So, uh, any musician, any band that you could think of that went through there in that era, Randy's mom cooked, cooked dinner for him. There was wow. this amazing picture that I found in a file cabinet in the back of the Rathbone River location. It was uh, the police, a very young police band, wearing like fringe t-shirts and everything, but sitting in, in Randy's mom's living room, I think, <laughs> getting ready wow. to eat dinner, you know. And, yeah. Um, you know, when we got when we got to the Rathbone location, his mother was a bit older, so she didn't cook for the touring bands, but he still would get Lancelotti's uh, from North Providence, which was pretty close to having a home-cooked meal. He would get them to cater for all the bands. So he always said, you know, these guys are on tour. They're far away from home. You don't know what their last meal was. It's very important that you feed them warm food, mm-hmm. make them feel welcome, give them a good experience, because it's not easy you know, to live in a van or live in hotel rooms. You know? Yeah, That always made an impact on me. And then after just, you know, he was always very fair, very kind. Always had a good little joke, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I learned a ton, ton working for. At one time, I was having probably the worst sound experience in my life with a very difficult band. You know, the living room didn't have the best sound system. The one that Rathbone Street had components of it from the one from Promenade Street, so it's old, you know, yeah, it's like okay. old wooden boxes and big and a lot of wiring and. So it was definitely, to learn sound there, you could do sound there, you could do it anywhere. Um, <laughs> you know, so I'm going crazy, everything's kind of broken, I'm just trying to fix stuff on the spot, and running around like crazy, and the tour manager is kind of busting my balls about food, and, and I'm like, you know, I'm answering his questions as I go along, because I, I wore a lot of hats down there. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Randy came in, and he's like, how's it going? And I was like, obviously super stressed. Yeah. 
And he just looked at me and he goes, you know, it's going to be over at one o'clock and, and we'll be fine. And then at the end of the night, the tour manager came up to me and shook my hand. And it's like, I'm very sorry. <laughs> I don't know what was said between him and Randy, but, uh, he just said, I'm very sorry for, uh, making you run around earlier and I appreciate all your hard work. And he shook my hand and said, thank you. And left. So he had a magic to like make really difficult situations easier and yeah. put everybody on the same page. Mm-hmm. You know, there wasn't a lot of ego for such an amazing personality that had, you know, hosted Ron Wood and Bon Jovi and Metallica and Megadeth and, you know, all these Jimmy Cliff and Grandmaster Flash and DMC. And, I mean, he worked with all these bands. Yeah. Yeah. Guy had zero ego, like zero. He really just, he loved life, he loved people, he loved, you know, youth, and he just wanted people to have a place to express themselves and grow. You know, I had, I had a night with this punk rock band, that had a horrible name. I, I was already going into this night like, this is just going to be an awful experience, you know. <laughs> and sure enough, the kid, the kid was uh, trying to do some interesting techniques with our microphone, and we had such limited you know, gear that I, I got mad. I went on stage. I was like, yo, man, stop abusing the gear. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, at the end of the night, Randy calls him over and, and I, I was, you know, I was a little upset. And, you know, the kid's like, oh, you know, I'm really inspired by G.G. Allen and da da da. And Randy looks at him and he's like, yeah, G.G. Allen used to bring his own microphones. <laughs> you can do anything you want when you bring your own microphone, you know? So yeah, it's just yeah. always that, that level to not let stuff simple stuff irk you, you know, and put your best face forward and be positive and be kind, you know. Mm-hmm. I think he brought a lot of uh, a lot of light to the music scene in, in Providence and I feel like a lot of people will chorus that, you know. Yeah. He gave a lot of care, you know, he was the rave movement in, in Providence, a lot of it went through Rhode Island, through the living room. We did the Tuesday night with volume, the energy night and Mm-hmm. It was a huge nights. We had big DJs in there, and you know, it was just a lot, a lot that went through that club. You know, mm-hmm. what were some of the bands that kind of came through, or some of the Rhode Island bands that came together from playing at at the living room? I don't. Well, Donnie Brook, they were pretty big players in the local music scene. They did pretty well. Kilgore Smudge used to play there a lot. Uh, Stained, I guess they went out as. Um, like I said, the whole freak show shed, um, um, state of corruption. Uh, those guys definitely oh, yeah, the yeah. was a big part of their, their development. Like, and then, you know, later on in, in time, when the Onlyville sound started coming up, we would do, you know, it was a big cavernous club. So you could set up on the floor. You could, you know, we had a conscious size stage, but then when the more underground movement stuff started coming in, you know, they would find little nooks and crannies to set up. So, like, Lightning Bolt did huge shows there, like, in the side room. And Onlyville Sound System used to do stuff with White Rabbits. And, you know. Yeah. Six Finger Satellite played there. You know, a lot of the bands that used to play in the warehouses, they they kind of would come over to the living room. That'd be like their club show would be. Yeah, yeah. Which yeah. probably wasn't a huge separation <laughs> from the warehouse. But, yeah. Um, you know, a lot of, a lot kind of movement went on there. Uh, hip hop. A lot of the hip hop bands would go through there. Randy started doing sh- shows with a, a promoter, and I mean, we did, you know, KRS One, TLC, Smith and Wesson, Jay with the Damager, Houdini, Biggie played there. Like, 
know, it was, it was pretty, pretty amazing, amazing mm-hmm. spot, you know, for yeah, everything that, that we did there. I'm trying to think of other local bands that would, uh, fall into the realm of, you know, well, I guess from, you know, Kilgore went on tour with Ozzy mm-hmm. from there and the drummer from Wet Stew is this big Wet Stew the Slip. Actually, they used to do every, the Wednesdays there, I believe, for a couple of years. I mean, they grew the Bar Brothers now. I think they go by, but they made a big impact, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Quite a few. What other clubs have you worked at in, in Providence? So or? I worked there. I worked um, at the Ocean Nest in Tunic. Mm-hmm. Where Michael would have started taking me there to mix the reggae bands. Um, uh, I worked at Lupo's. I worked at the Met. Um, yeah, is that doing sound or was yeah. it still kind of doing everything? No, the Lupo's and the, and and the Met earlier on were just primarily sound. Mm-hmm. Um, at the Lupo's location on Washington, I did sound and bartending. Mm-hmm. I've always pretty much did sound, bartending, and, and door kind of stuff. Worked briefly at the firehouse for a little while. Like I said, I started kind of host a reggae night over at Taza. Um, yeah, that was, was uh, downtown. Yeah. Right? yeah, yeah, that's actually where I went. Met Polly Danger, uh, who was the upsetter sound DJ, who I work with currently at Foundation Mondays. Mm-hmm. Um, Chancellor at the time, and I was trying to, you know, like I said before, just bridge the gap between DJs and live music. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of that. Popped off a little bit there. Yeah, I think there was a place in Pawtucket called Cats. I think it's over there a little bit. Yeah, if I was just doing sound, it opens up a lot of doors here because there's always somebody needs sound somewhere, you know? Yeah, okay. And it's a pretty small net community as far as sound guys in the room. Um, yeah, and there's good ones, very accomplished ones. Jerome, uh, over at Fed, he works at the Parlor too. Um, yeah. Brian Cabral, Andy, there's Roger Sufi, there's, you know, award-winning sound guys that live in the state. It's like yeah. Same thing with musicians. And I think Providence, Rhode Island is a little gem, you know, there's a lot of talented people in a small little area. Yeah. Of all, you know, diverse backgrounds. And, you know, it's good. I see stuff going at Burnside Park downtown. They're starting to embrace different sounds. And, mm-hmm. You know, it's good. The PVD Fest is a great example of, mm-hmm. of the diversity of problems. I feel like starting to tap into it. You know. Yeah. So. Yeah, you've just recently played PVD Fest and Burnside, right? Yes. Uh, yep. I played with uh, what we call the Dub Element because it wasn't exactly a full natural element lineup. Um, we had Tony Black from he plays at the Mystic Jammers now, but I used to play with him in Doug Squad. He he played in um band and then we had the guest bass player Hash who plays in locally Animal Face and I believe he works at Harvey Garbage Steve Reed Corporation is bass player, so mm-hmm. perfect example of you know big talent in the small towns. Chachi and I have had a relationship for going on 20 plus years. 
yeah. in 25 years. I'm not sure of the exact date. Wow, that's cool. It's been a while. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> He's been a great inspiration and an influence in, in my career as well. He's just another really positive soul. Mm -hmm. you know, doing music for the right reasons. And, you know, whatever reason that you're doing music for, for you is your right reason. But I have, a, I feel like as a musician, you have a certain responsibility to bring people together and it's a big platform. You're standing mm -hmm. on stage and you're saying, hey, look at me, listen to me. You know, it's, so you're, you, know, you can either inspire people or bring them down. You know, so I think Chachi does a good, good job at uplifting people. Yeah, I mean, I have to say that when I did my interview with him a few months back, you know, he invited me to hang out after the interview to just sit in on, on your practice. And I was, I mean, I'm just blown away by him in general, but like just the amount of energy that he had in this practice space. Yeah, it just was even just, in rehearsal. It just, it was you guys and like me and, and James Lasowski was taking some pictures yeah. at, that night and he was like all in and yeah. it was just like, a show for the two of us yep. and um it was like it was inspiring to me as a musician that's what we're here for to to you know live obviously breathe and walk around on this planet but it's also to inspire each other and to expose each other to, to different aspects of life and learning you know so mm -hmm. it's, it's good when you meet people that are full of, you know full of that vibration that you know he's rejuvenated rejuvenated me a couple of times in, in music, you know, and, you know, as a musician, it's tough. It's just, you're doing this, this craft that means everything to you and you put all of your time and effort into it and it's hard to make money. I mean, quite frankly, you know, it really is hard to make money. Doing this. And I feel very fortunate that I've been able to, uh, at times totally live solely off music. Um, and then if not that totally augment my, my income from it, you know, so, but just to have somebody that, you know, has that passion constantly, and it's just like, you know, I'm, I'm usually a hired nun, I'm never like a front man, so it's, I feel like singers and people like that have that automatically, that pizzazz, that kind of like, go get it, mm -hmm. you know, foot on the gas all the time, um, you know, there's definitely been times he's uplifted me, and, you know, when I'm feeling down about my playing, or about where I am, and, you know, just a constant reminder of like, we're lucky to have this, I call it a conduit, you know. I remember writing my college application and it was like, you know, why do you want to go here? And I was just like, cause it's the only thing that makes sense to me, you know, like I don't, music talks to me at a very young age, you know, and you know, I was always like very enthralled by I used to want solid gold or any kind of outlet where I could get live music or see it. I would, instantly go to try to gravitate towards that or check it out or, you know, explore it and just to have that passion years and years and years and years later mm -hmm. is hard to, to keep it at that level of, you know, wicked sight and doing this. It's, you know, so he's a person playing with him, playing in natural element, even just through the parlor and just appreciative customers over the years. It's like, you realize why, why you're doing this. You know, it's like on that application, it's like I, I didn't really have a choice. David Prout always says it's like a, a conduit that comes through you. You know, you're just yeah. a vehicle. You know, and what you do with it, you know, how much you put into it will obviously open 
more doors and help you flourish, you know? Yeah. And I do believe that to be true because when I've been down on my game and I've been not happy about it, you know, good things didn't happen in my career. And when I was enthusiastic and, and dedicated and focused on it, then things, doors opened up, you know, probably yeah. where you least expect it most of the time, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I've had the great opportunity of backing a lot of national artists and it's stuff that you kind of forget. Um, you know, everybody wants to get on that tour and do the whole thing, but I, I've had the opportunity of backing artists that are coming through without a band. And show up and they rock with your band, or they you put a band together to play to back this artist up. And you know, I've had very good success doing that. And you know, I wouldn't trade those experiences for anything. Um, Chachi and Randy and people like that in my life have always been instrumental in keeping me focused, you know, keeping mm-hmm. me appreciative of the gifts that I have been given. You know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Totally. And my mother as well, I have to say. <laughs> big up moms. She's yeah. always been a big, uh, big proponent. Mm-hmm. I remember when I did my first, uh, my first international tour, you know, I called her up and I'm like, you know, I'm not good enough to be doing this. I don't know. You know, I don't know. I don't feel comfortable. I don't really know this music that solid. Da, da, da. She stopped and she was just like, do you think you're tricking all the other musicians in the room that you're good? (laughs) Take a deep breath and go and enjoy the experience. Yeah. She's like, it's not a mistake that you're there. You worked hard to get there. Yeah. You know, make the best of it. Who was that with? Uh, That was with the Four Corner Band. We backed up Don Minot. We played the Gambordo Music Festival um, in Praia. It's just such a huge world music festival. There's bands from all over the world. It's pretty amazing. I think the final head count was like about 80,000 people attended that show. Wow. Yeah. It's huge. I've never seen anything like it. We went on at like five in the morning or something like that. <laughs> really? Finished at sunrise. It was like on the beach. The ocean was coming right up under the stage. It was pretty, it's pretty epic. Yeah. 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 That was huge. But yeah, I mean, I, I feel really blessed, you know. I think I couldn't have asked for better people along the way to bring me to where I am now. You know, and I'm mm-hmm. thankful to be able to be part of running the parlor with Aaron Jang and Robert Yam. Aaron's another one who's, you know, been a lifelong person in the music business. He's played in many bands and always been pro musician. You know, mm-hmm. I feel like he has the same um, respect and thirst to keep the vibe alive, you know, and mm-hmm. works hard to do it, you know, with very little thanks at times. That's not, I don't think that's why you should do anything in life, you know, you should just do it because it's what you do. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, can you talk a little bit more about the parlor and what? Sure, I would love to talk about the parlor. <laughs> um, but like, how is that experience different, you know, so you kind of were doing everything at the living room and now you're, uh, you know, owner of the parlor, how's, how's that different? Well... I mean, you go from going like, (laughs) I wonder why, you know, I wonder why they're not doing this, or I wonder why this is not happening, or you know what you gotta do, you gotta do this, Randy, why aren't we doing this? Now as an owner, you realize like, there's a, there's a lot, a lot of bases to cover, and every day could be some new thing that you have to take care of, or, you know, rectify, or fix, or, you know, Mm -hmm. problem arise, or, you know, the responsibility, I think, is, you know, as a manager, it's a different responsibility. You're being responsible for another person's room, but as an owner, it's ultimately you, 
something happens, good or bad, yeah, it's on your shoulders. You know, uh, your employees can make mistakes or whatever. You know, that's on your shoulders. You yeah, you can't point fingers at anybody but yourself. Which is, you know, we've been blessed at the parlor to have a really amazing staff. You know, um, most of them have been with us for you know, it's usually years that people stay there. So mm-hmm. you know. There's no guarantee in a nightclub business. So to have a bunch of people that will show up every day and support your vision and, you know, help you bring music in a safe manner to a crowded room of people. Yeah. It's a special great breed of people. You know, we're really mm-hmm. thankful for all of our employees from bartenders to sound staff to door guys to, you know, it's all relative. I've always said that. Like your experience walking into a nightclub starts with your door guy. You know, that's going to be the first person you encounter. So they should be nice, you know. Yeah. You know, they should be, you know, easy to approach and answer your questions. And then you walk in from that point in time, and you're going to give them money, you know. So <laughs> then you're walking in, then you're dealing with your bartenders. And, you know, that's going to set the mood for the whole, for your experience in that room, you know. Mm-hmm. And then it should sound good because you're spending money to go see this band. You should hear them represented in the, in the manner that you're used to hearing them, you know. There's no talent switch on the soundboard but you can make things clear and mm-hmm. put it in its right place so we've been really blessed to have qualified people um, at all the positions in our club I'm really happy with all of that and I think Randy helped show me the importance of that You know, I can never understand why he put me at 22 years old as, as a door guy because it was like I wasn't ever considered myself really door guy material you know but when I moved out to San Francisco and I worked at the Alvaro and the Justice League, the first jobs I did there were door guards too because, you know, I was pleasant and, you know, interact with people and, mm-hmm. and talk to people. You know, you gotta be strict, you gotta check the IDs, you gotta, you can't play around, you know, so, um, it's a fine line to be able to maneuver both of that, you know. Yeah. It's not an easy business at all. Not an easy business. I love it though. It's in our blood. If you do it, you do it. You know? mm-hmm. And you really have to love it. And not, you know, my partners at the parlor, they do it because they love it. You know? mm-hmm. and that's what keeps you getting up out of bed every day and, and working hard towards the same goal. You know, you work really hard just to keep the venue going, you know. Yeah. It's not easy. Means. Yeah, can you talk about some of the things that happen at the parlor? I know that you have a, you, you know, you cover a lot of different genres of music, right? And yeah, I mean, through um, working with with Mark and and um, the Shanty, like Sharks, come, from, yes, yeah. the Sharks come cruising. Uh, he he kind of brought us this idea of hey, let's do this, you know, early Friday show uh, for the kids. Mm-hmm. You know, people can bring their kids. We have an all ages license, so people, you know, bring their kids. We had food going at the time and. You know, so we can bring the kids in, they can eat, we can do the sing-alongs, we can put the lyrics on, they put the lyrics on these big poster boards. Kids, they pass our instruments to all the children, it's really cool. You know, they sing sing-along songs, shanty mm-hmm. type stuff. And, and uh, that, you know, from that idea, it's like, oh, okay, all of a sudden we can c- cultivate this early crowd, uh, which led into, you know, so now we filled up this hours between five and eight, which are, usually unusable at a, at a nightclub, you know. Yeah, okay. That opened the door 
which is my favorite thing, is that bringing in the youth actually opened the door to older bands, because now there was this whole population of the 60 to, you know, musicians in there that are, there's a guy that comes and sings at Jazz Jam who's 90 years old, wow. um, Red, Big Red, and, uh, so now all these bands start to show up and be like, hey, you know, I have this blues band, I have this country band, we do that five to eight slot, work good for our crowd, you know? Yeah. So then we were able to bring in an older crowd, like, you know, from, from that younger crowd. And I guess, you know, we try to embrace all age levels. We try to keep the music at a, you know, really a level of good talent, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and we try not to, sh- we try not to uh, exclude anybody. I think for the size of the room, because it's such a, it's, you know, it's a hundred cap, low ceilings, RPA is, is good, but it, it caters towards, you know, certain kind of musicality. We, we don't really do, you know, too much heavy, heavy stuff. You know? mm-hmm. It's just hard to transfer into that room. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not that we would shy away from it by any means, you know, but. You know, we do, we work with the Warriors, we do some kind of punk rocky stuff, and just nothing really that, that heavy, nothing mm-hmm. intense, because it's hard to support. Like I said, with, with the room size and the P that we have, PA that we have, it's, mm-hmm. that's the only thing that I think, you know, not that it gets overlooked, it just doesn't really work. In that yeah. Yeah. But you guys are doing so much other stuff. We do everything, like. I mean, you know, we have everything yeah. now, I really, I don't think there's a genre that we don't touch, you know. Uh, we do the jazz from five to eight on Sundays, and that's, we have a clear audience from Boston coming down, we have rotating artists on, um, the second Sunday, the third Sunday is a jazz jam, which is really cool because there's usually a house band of some local guys, and they pick a different genre every month, I mean a different artist every month, and then people can get up and sit in and play. Wow, that's and, cool. Then we have Ed Tomasi, Ed Tomasi band at the end of the month. Mondays is the reggae night. Uh, Tuesdays is the open mic, which is one, I think four motif war awards. Um, that's really cool because it's pretty open. Mm-hmm. Anybody can get up there and have their, you know, 15 minutes of whatever they want to do. Mm-hmm. Our Wednesday night is kind of like more gem funk jazz night. Be a very talented sax player, Leland Baker is taking it over. Uh, he, he provides the house band, and then various other people can come sit in. Uh, Thursday is rotating schedule. There's all different bands of all different genres. Friday, like I said, we do the early shows from 5 to 8, which can be anything from blues to children's sing-along to country to reggae to rock and roll, whatever. And uh, Friday nights we do the karaoke, which is held over from the previous people that we we bought it from, which was a interesting genre for me that I didn't have much experience in, but I've grown to enjoy. You know, it's like we, we I think we take it as granted as musicians to be able to stand on stage and yeah. entertain people and express ourselves and write it out, you know, or there's this population of people that have maybe had the opportunity to study music or they like singing in their car or whatever, so they yeah. can come in there and, and, and do it, you know. Um, then Saturday is usually uh, open for, for interpretation as well yeah yeah that's awesome yeah try to keep it diverse and open for everybody
most current band, Animal Face, which is more like a free, free jazz, uh, and Miles Davis fusion approach. I mean, obviously not compares to Miles Davis, but, um, I really enjoy playing in that band a lot. That, that's yeah. what's on Hash on bass and Dan Raposa on drums and Grayson Farmer, Leland, uh, Stefan Alexander plays sax and it's real open-ended. Yeah. Really highly improvisational based and you kind of just work out basic frames from that. Oh, okay. And, that and then jump. Really enjoyed that a lot. Um, we don't play that frequently because everybody's touring and working in that band as well. So, mm-hmm. but when we can get it together, it's, it's, it's really fun. It's awesome. Yeah. I think all the music I play, you know, between backing up artists, I mean, I've worked with like I said earlier, Otanellas and Kuno Mega and Everton Blender and, uh, various other artists. You know, that's always, I always have to learn people's stuff and it's like very, you know, playing in this genre or this idiom is like, you have to, you know, portray the music in a certain way. Yeah. Um, oh, at OG and Master Ace, I've had the pleasure of working with them a few times. And, but once again, you're, you're learning these tunes and you're learning songs that people have heard. Mm-hmm. Before you've ever played them and know them well. So it's your job to, you know, get that music out in a certain way. Whereas mm-hmm. this new project of him is really open-ended, you know, more of a chance to express myself. I think it's more what I was doing back in the day with, with um, some of my, I think it was like Texture 111 was, was the band I was in at that time. The last kind of ta- time I scrubbed technique, I think it was another band I was playing back. Like the nineties, yeah, yeah. And that's really where I, the last time that I really just went out there and bugged out on stage. <laughs> so it's good to to get that, you know. Especially with the years that have gone by, and you know, I feel I've progressed as a musician in some areas. Some areas, you know, sometimes I listen to the stuff I played, and you know, in my younger days, and I'm like, how how was I even playing that? You know, really, it's funny. Uh, I think definitely younger me would give older me a run for my money. <laughs> <laughs> but like I said, I'm, I'm, I feel blessed just to be in the game and still be doing it. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. yeah. What would you say is your greatest musical accomplishment? Um, really just to continue to play music at a high level with talented people. You know, mm-hmm. and I think every artist wrestles with you know, where they are and their progression towards their craft. And I kind of look at the people around me and be like, wow, you know, these, these cats are really good. So mm-hmm. <laughs> I feel like that's my biggest music. I mean, I, you know, I've played huge gigs. I played at the Kennedy Center. I, you know, played in Jamaica. I played in big festival. I played the Jazz Blues Festival in Jamaica. I did three-week tour with Lloyd Niv and, you know, I've had some just as amazing experiences playing in Providence at some small ass clubs, you know, like I think it's the reward to me is to, that I'm continuing to progress and grow and I'm still playing playing gigs and I'm still, you know, making a little money and and the people that I'm playing with are very talented. Mm-hmm. I feel that's the biggest accomplishment is to continue to grow and, and play at a high level. Yeah. Is, is important. Fantastic. Yeah. Thank you so much, Gregory. Thank you. 